Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we rerun some of the stories that have run on the podcast over the past 10 and a half years. From June 11th to July 2nd, 2020, we're going to be rerunning some of our very favorite stories that have been told by black storytellers about race and racism. As you probably know, a huge priority of ours here at Risk is to feature as many stories from people of different walks of life. And it's especially important, we think, that people are hearing about black lived experience from black people. That's why I want to remind everyone, if you, if you think you might have a story to share along these lines about race or racism, please, if you catch yourself thinking, yeah, but my story is not so spectacular or, oh, I'm not much of a storyteller, don't worry about that. If you have had lived experiences that made you emotional in some way, you have stories and we can help you shape them. So reach out to me at kevin at risk-show.com or to our pitches people at pitches at risk-show.com. There's lots of tips on how to pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. So we want your stories. We can help you prepare them. And we want you all to be spreading the word to other people you think might have great stories along these lines. Now, for this episode, we're going to hear remarkable stories, first by Seton Smith, then by Ian McIntosh, then by T.S. Madison, and then by Ashton Cynthia Clark. Now here's the show. Thank you, thank you. Um, this story is gonna be about cops. Now, I'm not sure how I feel. Um, my girlfriend recently called the police under uncomfortable circumstances. Now, I don't know. I feel like 
In America right now, especially now we can talk openly about this, there are two types of people in America when it comes to cops, right? If one of those type of people sees a problem on the street, they'll go to themselves, there's a problem, I need to call the cops. Now, there's a second type of person that see, they see that same problem, they'll stop and ask themselves, do I want to complicate this with cops? Or I got a little weed in my pocket, my friend has a prior, uh, man, they'll find that baby. Let them sort it out, baby. <laughs> My girlfriend, though, she's the opposite. She's, uh, she calls cops, that's her thing. Because she's, you know, she's kind of like a white woman. Um, uh, <laughs> I guess not kind of, kind of like you, man. Kind of super white, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, you seem kind of purebred. I don't be offensive. <laughs> I'm sorry, white woman seems too harsh. Let's say woman of white. And make you feel better? I feel better. Hell yeah, man. <laughs> My girlfriend, yeah, she calls cops. She, cause she, you know, she, I don't know. She trusts them. For me, I have a complicated relationship with cops. Uh, first time I really uh, had to deal with cops, I was four years old. And my mother was dropping off my brother at his grandmother's house in Indio. I got to use all these specific words because, you know, baby daddies and all that shit, right? So, like, his grandma in Indio were dropping him off. Suddenly, I hear, get the fuck on the ground! And I look up, and I realize the apartment complex that was once empty is now full of a SWAT team, all right? Like, helicopters, uh, canines. There was one dude with a flashlight and a, and a rifle in my car, because I was, like, uh, sitting there as a four-year-old boy in the back seat. My brother had walked across the street to go see his dad, and my mom was just kind of sitting there talking, and I had no shoes on. So, you know, at that point, I'm sitting in the back of the car. But then, you know, all of a sudden, there's nothing, and me, and the gun, and, uh, and uh, rifles. And I look over, and I see my brother. He's on the ground, and he has a gun to his back. And my mother, for some weird reason, was let go free. Like, no, they didn't nobody fuck with her. And she lost her fucking mind. She was flipping out. Get the fuck away from my son! I, I was just so weird because it was weird to see like I don't know what kind of guns cops have they look like AR-15s but you know machine guns and it's just so weird to see my mom this is like only like five foot kind of flipping out on this old big old white guy with a gun in the face it was really kind of cool that's not my mom was that strong anyways that was my first time I was in a drug bus second time I uh, was actually 18 years old and I'm telling you all these stories crowd to understand that like okay that time oh I found out that drug bus um, apparently was um, the cops apparently got the wrong address so it was completely, nobody had done any drugs. I wasn't part of a drug game. My family wasn't part of it. They cops were just like, oh shit, the crack house is over there. My bad. And that was it. And so, uh, <laughs> and my mother found this out and she flipped out like crazy. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> she was in his face. And, and the cop just the whole time was just like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You know, just shit happens. You know, shit happens. You know, he didn't seem, I've seen a lot of cartoons and cops are always like heroes. Like, yeah, you know, save the bad guy. But this nigga was like, well, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? I don't know. It's just so... Uh, so that was my feeling. I was like, okay, cops are not, they're not evil, but they ain't on cartoons. So fast forward to 18 years old, and I've gone through a lot of, you know, fuck the police phase in teenage years, right? But now I'm just like, let me just be myself, mind my own business. I go to Washington, D.C. from New Jersey, and uh, my first day at Howard University. Howard University in 2001, this is before D.C. got gentrified, so there's still that angle of just, you know, pure crack. And so... Uh, <laughs> Just a long way of crack. Like, literally, I started in 2000 when I was doing Howard. The Howard orientation consisted of them talking to a freshman. All right, all right, listen, right now, you are on this street. If you walk one block south, you will be shot. Do not walk down that street. <laughs> if you look to your east, <laughs> if you walk down that street, you will also get shot. Do not walk down that. That was my orientation. I was scared as fuck. I ain't leaving my house. 
for like three, four months. I found out they were exaggerating. Only two people really got shot. Like everybody else, like, <laughs> everybody else lived and got wounded. So like, uh, <laughs> so in DC, that was weird. Cause I was walking, first day, I decided I wanted to go to the DC Improv to see Wayne Brady. And this is back when he was hot. And so uh, <laughs> I'm about to go see Wayne Brady. So I'm like 18 year old guy, about to walking down to the subway, and suddenly I just see a bunch of crackheads just walking, like, and then I'm just walking through. I'm like, I don't know what to do, I'm 18, so I'm just walking, trying to, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And all of a sudden, I hear a cop go, you, 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 get on the, get on the wall, get on the wall. And this crowd is when I learned the first lesson on how to deal with cops. If you ever on the street and you hear a cop go, you, get on the wall, don't do some dumb shit like this, turn around and go, me? Because... <laughs> If you're a young black Negro, they do mean you. And so uh, <laughs> that's what they did. Put me on the wall and he's patting me down. He was like, what the fuck are you doing here? What are you doing here? I was like, I, I just walked into the subway. I don't even know what you're going. I, just, I don't even know if it's my second day at school. And, uh, <laughs> and he was like, really? And he pulled my wallet out, saw my ID, and he was like, oh, you're going to Howard University. And he looked at me with the most sincere face like, so how do you like DC? And I was like, <laughs> It's, it's good, officer, it's good. Um, I don't know, again, complicated conversation with cops. I don't know, are they people, are they evil, are they just... I think the first time I really got maybe in trouble with cops, like I might have gotten some shit. It was really small, it was in, um, I was in Rindo Mills, Maryland. It was like a night show. I was doing, trying to do comedy, and it was a night show, and Rindo Mills, Maryland has this, this mall that's just huge. It's really one of those big ones that you know, you kind of go there for all day long because you have nothing else going for you. Like one of those malls, factory outlets, right? So it was an empty parking lot though, right? And I'm just driving through, but it was one of those big parking lots that had stop signs, right? And so I'm like, you know, there's nobody around. Fuck them stop signs. So I'm just driving through. I'm not even thinking about the stop signs. There's nobody here. Who am I stopping for? Ghost? No. So I'm just driving. That's what I'm going through my head, right? And then suddenly I hear whoop, whoop. And I'm looking, I'm like, what the fuck? A cop, right? I just pull over and I'm with my friends, right? I got like two of my boys with me, right? And like they're two, I'm not gonna say I'm from the good side of the tracks. I'm not bad. I'm just, you know, I just, I'm, I'm alive. These two friends, though, they were like straight hood. They enjoyed it. Like, listen, man, I used to sell crack. I'm hood. But they're not now. Point being, this cop comes to the car, and he's black. And I don't know what happened, but he came with his ego. You ever met cops that just come, like, all of a sudden, they don't want to help you? They're just like, I'm the law. He kind of came with that. <laughs> I'm the law. Do you know how many stop signs you went through? And I was just like, but, sir, it's just a parking lot. That ain't the point. You went through them stop signs. You know, I can give you a ticket. You know, I can give you a ticket all the time, right? You know, I can give you over oh, that $250 for each ticket. That's me time. He's talking like fucking Eddie Murphy. He was just fucking going on me, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, sir, I just, I don't even know what's going on. And I'm just trying to win. And all of a sudden, my boy, right, he's just bigger. He just, all of a sudden, he just says with a very calm voice, I'm sorry, officer. And all of a sudden, everything got real quiet. And I just, it felt like his voice came through me. And I was just like, I'm sorry, officer. <laughs> I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again, officer. <laughs> and the cop was almost weirded out, like, oh, oh, okay, well then, well, don't do it again. He walked away, and I was like, <laughs> and I looked at my friend, like, what the fuck have you been through, nigga? You know what I mean? Because, like, <laughs> but you got to conjure up them dark feelings, like, <laughs> I ain't going back to jail. You better handle this. Like, what? <laughs> That's what I felt. So, I'm sorry, I'm saying all this, so again, complicated conversation with cops. So let me just, let's fast forward to a couple weeks ago, um, my girlfriend, a white girlfriend, in um, <laughs> Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in this white, gentrified apartment building, we had a neighbor who, uh, 
I like my apartment. I'm proud of it. I'm 34. I've worked hard for my apartment. Our next door neighbor is a 23 year old um, little white girl who just fucking got it. And I, uh, <laughs> listen, listen, I understand we all have different economic situations, but fuck her. And like, <laughs> this bitch got the backyard. How's she gonna get a backyard? She's 23 years old. She ain't done shit with her life. Anyway, so like, <laughs> point being, very nice neighbor, nice girl. And she, <laughs> <laughs> so one night we come home and we find our nice neighbor um, she's looking kind of pale and she's with another dude looking equally pale but I just figure fuck it they're raving you know what I mean so I'm not gonna bother them I, but they're just standing outside of her apartment building I'm like are you alright she's like we just lost our keys I don't know it's okay it's okay she's really pale it's okay she's whispering away I'm like alright y'all better be alright and I go in my house and I don't know like maybe an hour goes by and I keep hearing rustling I keep hearing like I'm like keep more rustling I'm like where's the, where's the, where's the key guy at where are they fucking? I don't know what are they doing. Like, it just sounded like real weird. And look out there, and she's just kind of walking around randomly, and I don't see the guy. And then maybe 30 minutes go by, and all of a sudden, she's just kind of hitting doors. And all of a sudden, 30 minutes go by, and she's just, ah, she's making noises. Yeah, I found out later that she took LSD, I think, and didn't have any backup plan. Like, apparently that, like, <laughs> she had nobody, no safety net. And she's just out there, just, ah, fucking gone, all right, gone. And my girlfriend, she's been sober eight years. And so she's looking at this woman, like, seeing herself. She's like, we need to help her. And I was been a whore for the last three. And, like, I've chased girls like that. And I'm like, fuck that. And, uh, <laughs> but she wants to help. And I'm like, I don't want to. And, and then as we're arguing, we hear another dude out there, our neighbor. Um, I shouldn't say his name. That's a motherfucker. Uh, we'll call him white guy, who was about... Five eight, and I just hear him talking to her, just like, "Is everything okay?" And he's really drunk. Again, it's four o'clock in the morning. He's drunk. He's going, "Are you okay?" I just, I just let me in, and he, and he's like, "But what's wrong? You're in. You're in here already." <laughs> right? And that's when she hit him. Right? And she just knocked him. Right? <laughs> knocked the shit up. Just hit his nose. He's bleeding everywhere. Right? And me and my girl come out because we hear a rustle, and we all we see is this white hallway covered in blood. This 5'8 man holding down this like 5'4 girl, blood just gushing on her, and he looks up and he's like, call the police, right? <laughs> and my first thought is, nigga, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, you're holding down a girl covered in blood, nigga, run. Like, like. <laughs> you gotta go, this is not gonna be cleared up, they're gonna shoot you. <laughs> Have you seen videos, nigga? Like, this is, uh, so. <laughs> but he looks at me righteously like, no, they need to see this, this needs to be handled. <laughs> I'm like, how old are you? Why are you talking like that? So like, and so I'm like, hey man, well, good luck to you. So I walk inside again, like, I don't want to be part of that. <laughs> my girl calls, she uses my phone, calls the police, and then a few minutes go by. Because <laughs> I'm not out there, I'm like, nah. And like, uh, and all of a sudden I hear, hello, excuse me, yeah. And my girl's like, go fucking talk to him. I'm like, all right, what's up, man? He's like, well, the cops at the door, can, can you let him in? And again, no, no, like, the door, there was a window, so the cop actually looked in, saw what was going on, but still, I'm like, have you, I've, I've been around cops. These motherfuckers just fucking die, and then later talk about it. So I was like, I don't want to open the door. And he's like, no, open the door. So I got really nervous. I step over them, and I open the door, and this fucking blew my fucking mind, because as he's holding this woman down, covered in blood, he looks up at the cop and goes, you want me to let her up? And the cop looks around and goes, nah, let me figure out what's going on first. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how white people get it, nigga? Like that? 
I'm not going to be racist about this. I think with cops, I feel like, I guess I've lived a long enough life. I just realize it's just people, you know? You just hope that when shit's going down, you get a good one, not a bad one, you know? That's all you can, can hope for, so. That time, at four in the morning, we got a good one, so just hopefully <laughs> the next time that one's good, too. Peace, man. My relationship with Lori began with a headbutt. I'm not one of those guys that you tickle. I, I respond in a very violent and involuntary way. So whenever I was in my dorm room in college, Lori being the joker that she is, she decided to sneak up behind me and shove her fingers underneath my armpits. And I snapped my head back. And whenever I did, I hit her in the head and she got knocked out. So I was terrified. But Lori is one of, those, uh, one of those people, she's hilarious, very funny. So we're sitting in the, in the nurse's office, the nurse was gone for 30 minutes, so obviously she's trying to piece the things together. And we're watching her through the window, and she's imitating what she's saying. Like, she's just trying to, I can't even do it justice to how she was so funny. If she could see me right now, being a tall, lanky guy with dreads, she would say that I look like Slenderman and Whoopi Goldberg fucked. Like, that's <laughs> what she would say. She would, wear her, uh, she would wear her socks all the way up. Um, she would wear her, her shorts above her belly button and she would tuck in her shirt. She was so dorky. She looked like a, a, a zookeeper like, that other zookeepers would shove into a locker. It was just, it, it wasn't. But she would do that to downplay her beautifulness. She was incredibly beautiful. And she hated to be the center of attention. So that really attracted me. I needed to date her. So one day we're walking, actually a week after our heads collided, I um, took her on a walk and we were walking past the PNC Park and stadium and um, I had to say something. So I said, hey, would you like to go out with me? And immediately she kissed me. And on the dot, fireworks went off and she wheeled back and she punched me in the arm and she said, I planned this. And I said, no, I definitely don't have the money or the budget to do that. It's making sense. And also, it didn't make any sense that there was no game, there was no event, so also we didn't know what was, what was going on, so it seemed like the universe was saying that we're perfect together. About uh, three months after we were dating, um, I was moving out of the dorm room and I was going to be leaving, um, living on my own with other uh, friends that I had in college, and it was gonna be a big deal because I was gonna be paying you know, rent and things like that. And, um, Everybody came out to you know, support and help me move, and my parents also. So that meant that Lori had to meet my parents. So she was very nervous. And out of respect for Lori and my mother, I said that Lori was white. And I knew that my, my mother would lecture me not about the fact that she was white. She didn't mind about that. But she, what she was going to lecture me about was that society wasn't ready for that and that there were some dangers behind that. But I didn't believe that I was going to have that, so it was okay. Still, my mother insisted. So whenever we had a caravan of cars packed up, my mother leaned her car back like Danzo Washington in training day and <laughs> told Lori to jump in. Hey, come on, rookie, strap in, let's go. She was gonna give her the same lecture. So as we were driving, I looked through my rearview mirror and I just saw my mother's car just do a random turn and I just got a whole bunch of texts like, I'm going to die, like that was. <laughs> 
About a few hours later, they come into my house with a whole bunch of groceries, laughing like they're best friends, and like they just cleaned up, like fucked up a clearance sale. Like it just, they were best friends. And they had like, they had uh, inside jokes, they had like trading tips on how to fatten me up because I'm skinny, and it didn't, it was embarrassing. But also heartwarming because two of my favorite women in the world are laughing. I experienced happiness for the first time. And with that happiness, we started to plan what was going to happen after college. I was studying film, and I'm also still in film, so spoiler alert. Um, but film isn't necessarily something that you raise a family on because you're waiting for the next check. You don't know whenever your client's going to pay you back. So I started to think about maybe I should go to college again to get a better job so I could raise our family. And that wasn't a sacrifice. That was, I was willing to do that. About a year and a half in of dating, she finally says, hey, I would like you to meet my parents. And she said where her parents are from, which is Deer Lakes. And Deer Lakes doesn't sound like some place that black people really go to. Um, it sounds like white people shoot a deer in the back of the head and tie cinder blocks to the legs and drop them to the bottom of the lake. That's what, that's what that sounded like. So my natural reaction is, do they know? And this is way before Get Out. So <laughs> she didn't understand what that meant. And it just became an Abbott and Costello routine. It was like, who? What are you talking about? What's going on? And I would say, do they know if I'm black? And she immediately responded, well, my mother likes watching BET. And I was like, that's not funny. <laughs> bad context. Um, but she immediately said, I'm joking, no, it's fine. Like, it's very important that you meet my parents, and I, if it's important to her, then it's important to me. So my nervousness in being sure about this was going back and forth like a pinball. As I was driving through Deer Lakes, it's actually really beautiful. Like, the sun would break through the trees, and I could smell bonfire in the distance, and it kind of calmed me a little bit. But then I pulled into the neighborhood, and I right across the street from her parents is this black statue of this bellhop holding a lantern and and he had uh his the the skin on it was kind of chipping away so it looked like he had vinilago so um i was planning on kicking it over on the way out um but i got to the door and i knock at the door and uh, i can hear laughter i can hear happiness i can hear music i can hear sounds of of cooking and I was like, okay, that's happiness. I want to be a part of this happiness. I can't wait to be a part of this. But whenever the mother saw me, it was like opening up an emergency door on an airplane. All of that happiness, all of that music, all of that singing was sucked out. The only sounds that was being heard in the room was the scrapes of the forks against the plates and every now and then I would say, hey, this is good. Lori's mother would say, thank you. But I noticed that she wasn't eating. She's looking at me like a stain. And out of nowhere, she exploded. And she stood up and she said, I'm never going to eat again until you stop dating this nigger. It took me moving out into the suburbs to experience death. My senior year, I was actually a really good kid. I never even smelled a cigarette. I never even drank beer. 
But it was my graduation, and my best friend insisted that I go out to this party that was out in Oakdale, PA, which was a place that black people really don't go to. It's, seriously, it's not for us. But I, I, I went. And whenever I went, there was some KKK members around, but I knew them because I went to high school with them, so they said, okay, this nigger's fine. <laughs> One wasn't okay with that. So he went out to his pickup truck and he took a shotgun and he shoved it into my mouth. And as that nuzzle scraped against the top of my mouth, he told me to beg for my life. I had to recover from that. It took me dating interracially to have a thought of suicide. I don't remember getting from leaving that table. I don't remember getting into my car. I don't remember kicking over the Levanilago statue or anything like that. I just drove. And I remember that my mental brain was going, okay, I can't see anything. I have a lot of blur in my eyes because there's a lot of water in it. And if one tear drops, I've messed up. So I just kept on curling up my eyes to make sure it didn't drop. 70, 80, 90, I just kept on driving. I didn't give a fuck if I hit a guardrail, if I hit a deer, if a police stopped me. I kept on driving until I saw a welcome to Ohio. That's how numb I was. I realized I was running away from what her mother was saying. And I realized that also my phone is going off the hook. It's vibrating like crazy. And then suddenly all of the words start hitting me again. I now remember that she pointed at me, and whenever she pointed at me, it almost pierced me. I could feel her finger. And then I started to realize, and I started to remember what she was saying, the words that I was trying to run away from. She was saying that I, a college graduate, an honor student, was going to either abuse her daughter, raise children in a way that they would be drug addicts, or, or live in dirt. And I didn't defend myself, so therefore, the, the fact that I didn't defend myself, it validated everything that she said. Whenever I got back, Lori insisted that we dated secretly because she loved me so much. And that whenever we graduate, we just head for the hills. We just find someplace where we're away from everything. But that's whenever the real shit started to happen. She started to become skinnier. Her trying to be positive... Her saying that, oh, I'm just losing weight because I'm working out. I knew that wasn't the case. It was because her Christian and all of her friends that have the biggest heart in the world, they claim, were shaming her because she was hiding from her racist parents that she was dating a black boy. About a month after that happened, Summer approached, and she said that there was a Christian camp that her parents wanted her to go to, and it was going to be a good opportunity for her because she wanted to help the Christian community in Pittsburgh, and it would be a networking thing and everything else. But I knew that that wasn't the case. It was actually her being isolated away from me. I'm not a possessive guy, but whenever your best friend stops texting you, stops calling you, stops talking to you, you start to feel something about that. It was a lot of radio silence. A month after that, she said, hey, come see me. It's in uh, New Jersey, right near the beach. It's a beautiful place. And I jumped at it. Whenever I arrived, it was, it was a beautiful place. 
the house that she was in was a mansion and it was buzzing with all of these white faces that were very talented and very groomed for the next step in their life. And I was happy for them. But also they were looking at me like, this mansion was a computer and I was the virus. They started finding ways to try to drive home that subtly that we weren't meant to be together. Oh, you're artistic? Uh, Lori is business. How would that ever work? That made no sense. Who the fuck says something like that to somebody in a relationship in front of both of them? We were never allowed to be alone together, ever. They were always talking to us, always in the room, never letting us be alone. The last night that I was there, she texted me. She said, hey, meet me at the beach at 10.30. So whenever I got there, she was there and she was smiling and we were playing around and we were dancing and it was just like, it was just like we were dating again. We kissed again. I still have this picture that is so important to me because, but I, I, I can't bring myself to delete it, but I can't make, bring myself to look at it again. It was a picture of me and her sitting at the, at, on the sand. We're both smiling and there's a Ferris wheel in the background and so many colors. And as soon as that picture was taken, she broke down. She started to cry. She broke up with me on that beach. One month, two months, three months. All of my friends were like, when are you going to get over this? Every single time whenever I would try to get consoled, it would either be answered with, oh, well, I'm having trouble with my girlfriend, or my Wi-Fi isn't working. That's how they would answer that shit. They would say, hey, just go to the club, get some girl, and just fuck her. Get over it. That's all I had. I dated somebody after that for two years, and um, all I could think about is Lori. All I could think about is the situation. I wasn't present, so that, that relationship ended badly. Immediately after that, I emailed her, and I didn't know what to say. I was just like, hey, I just want to know if you're okay. And that's it, just an email, not a text, not anything, just an email. She responded, I almost missed the email. She responded, I prayed to God and he answered my prayer because I wanted to know how you were doing, how about we meet? So we met at a Panera Bread and I sat down and I looked at her and she was the same, beautiful. But there was no jokes, there was no happiness, her favorite movie was Bridesmaids, and she would always quote Wendy Williams, how you doing? There was no how you doing. She was just a corpse. She looked at me like she didn't even know me. So as I tell this story, after avoiding these thoughts, after even thinking about her, I'm realizing that I'm actually mourning a death. I'm mourning the death of a best friend and a future that I had over some bullshit on racism. And this story isn't a story. This is a eulogy. Thank you. Everybody out there doesn't know me. I am the infamous T.S. Madison, and I am, I'm everything. Right now, I'm an entertainer, I'm a viral vlogger, and 
I happen to have some adult entertainment on my resume. Well, it's, it's the first thing to pop up when you Google me, but you know. But there was a time when I was just plain old Madison trying to survive in Miami, Florida, in the on the streets of Miami, Florida. And being an African-American trans woman, it was very difficult for me to live in Miami and obtain a lot of things I wanted, like as far as um, transitioning and monies for that. So I had to work the street. Working the street, it has its ups and downs. Some nights you get all kind of good dick. Some nights you get bad dingling. And then other nights you get robbed. So it was November 22nd, 2001. I was in the midst of trying to decide whether I was going to continue to live in Miami. It was a couple of days before Thanksgiving. That's why I didn't forget it. I had came to the conclusion that I was going to just solely do my escorting work off of the internet. I was going to only do arrows and maybe the magazines, the upscale magazines. Now, when you're working out the, the magazines and arrows, you don't get the good dick that you need like you can get from the sidewalk, honey. So I said, Madison, I'm just going to tiptoe a little bit out here. Just tiptoe out here on the sidewalk and, you know, have a little fun, make a couple dollars and then get back to my upscale whoring. Well, a guy picked me up on the corner of Northwest 79th Street and 12th Avenue. I think it's about midnight because you know the freaks come out after 12. He had to be about 29 years old. He had a little pudgy stomach. He had a cute face. He had, his body wasn't, he didn't have a cute body, but he was, he had a cute, he was Puerto Rican and black. So he had a nice caramel skin tone and he had a small cock because I saw it. It was small, but you know, I'm the big dick bitch, honey. So, of course, he wanted a big dick bitch in his mouth. Anyway, so, I mean, he was cute. And he had a lot of jewelry. I guess the jewelry was supposed to really excite me. But I'm like, you got on all his jewelry and all you have is 20 bucks? Okay, whatever. And he says, hey, baby, want to blow? And I was like, oh, but of course. <laughs> But that's going to cost you. And he says, okay, you know, how much is it going to cost you? And I said, it was going to, well, you know, a blowjob back then was, was 60 bucks. You know, for him to give me a blow, 60 bucks. And he was like, well, I don't have 60. All I have is 20. And who was going to turn down $20 and a good blowjob at the same time? I know it wasn't me. So I climbed my ass over into the car. I decided to go ahead on and say, okay, I'm going to take the 20 and I'm going to get in the car. I left all my girlfriends like, bye, girl. Bye, I'm going to get some fellatio. See y'all in about 10 minutes, you know? So I got in this car and we turned the corner. There was a vacant house with a lot of shrubbery and bush and stuff like that. And I told him, I said, baby, don't park here. I have a bad feeling about this area right here. And being that I'm a Libra, honey, I'm practically psychic. So I was like, I have a bad, bad feeling about this spot right here. He said, it's okay, baby. I have good head. And they start talking about they got good head and, and money. You know, it just it's, it does something. It just, it just puts a spell over you like, yes, I got to get it all. So I said, okay, well, just back up in. He was like, no, baby, it's okay. I'm going to pull right here. So he pulled there right in front of the shrubbery and all the bushes and stuff like that. Picked me right up from the corner. And he says, Okay, baby, lean the seat back. So I lean the seat back, you know, lean the back, you know, push my boobs up to the top, 
pulled one titty out of the bra so he could suck my nipple. So he sucked my nipple and it got me aroused and I got an erection. And he was like, oh, yes, you know. Oh, my God. So I said, like, baby, give me the money. I know you see the goods. Now give me the money. So he gave me the 20 bucks. And I slid, I had a, I never forget what I had on. I had a red, white, and blue two-piece bathing suit with an afro wig and I had it pulled back like Pam Greer and I slid the 20 bucks under the back of the wig. So I'm laid back in the seat and he's just performing. Mm, 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 mm. Like a bobblehead. Mm, mm, mm. So as he's performing and I'm looking here because I am still have this uneasy feeling about these freaking bushes over here. Shrubbery is just shaking. So I tap his head like while he's down there. I said, baby, look up. I think there's something moving <laughs> in the bushes over here. So he was studying like, mm, it's okay. Mm, mm, mm. So it, at this time, my erection is like going down to like nothing. It's going, it's, it's shriveling up to nothing. He's like, baby, what's wrong? I'm like, baby, there's something crawling in these bushes and in this grass. Do you know that this fool looked up? I looked over and there was a double barrel sawed off shotgun right there in the car and it was a guy with a ski mask on and he said you motherfuckers don't move so of course I'm already frozen I was already halfway hard so I couldn't do anything because my panties was down around my ankles and I'm sitting here with this afro wig you just had to see the moment I was just like sitting here looking at the gun, at this fucking dude looking at the gun. My dick is over here de dead asleep. And this fool is sitting here like, give me all y'all fucking money. Give me your jewelry. Give me all this stuff. So I'm sitting here like, what? So do you know that this disgusting fool had the audacity to say, I just gave her all the money. I was like, you dumb bitch. I said, baby, listen, I don't have any money. He has on all this jewelry. So, you know, it became a war of who has what in the car. <laughs> so, so the guy opens the door and he said, don't you fucking run. Just give me all this jewelry. Give me all this jewelry and all your money. So he was like, hold on, baby. He said, hold on, man. Don't kill me. Don't kill me, man. Please. Please don't kill me. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. And then all of a sudden, this fool shot off running. So he leaves me in his car, panties around my ankle, shriveled up dick, sitting up here, soft as goddamn cotton. The robber is looking at how fast the man has shot off like speed racer, like pew. And he, both of us are sitting here shocked. So the dude jumps in the car, turns this man's fucking car on, throws it in reverse. I'm still sitting here, legs wide open. Dick still sitting here like, oh my God, is this shit really happening? <laughs> he backs the car up and does a hundred going up the street. So I'm like, baby, are you serious? So he puts the gun over here and he says, bitch, you're going to give me all that motherfucking money that that nigga gave you. I said, baby, I told you the man ain't, I don't have any money. He didn't give me any money. He didn't give me shit. Cause fuck that, I wasn't parting with that twenty dollars. I'm sorry, I shit. Now nah, I didn't get you. He licked the dick, and I, I need my money for him licking it. So we riding up the road, doing hundred miles an hour in a fucking stick shift Toyota Corolla. So this fool is driving the stick with the mask on and the gun. I, it, this shit was it was like out of a fucking 
I'm moving. So it was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. So I'm over here and I'm trying to pull my panties up. My, my shit's still hanging out here, okay? And he's like, don't look at me. This was crazy. We drove past the police car and he said, bitch, don't look at me. And he pulled his mask off. Like he pulled it from this way because we rode next to the police. So he pulled the mask off like this. So when he said, don't look at me, the first thing I did was, I looked dead at his face. Like. drove to some area like he knew where he was going like he's been doing this all night long and he jumps out of the car he comes around on my side and he tells me to get out and I got out of the car and he says pull those fucking panties off pull all of that shit off so I took it all off or whatever he had me stark naked it was almost dawn and he took me to the bushes and he said you're gonna give me everything you got I said baby I don't have anything he says, all of that ass and them titties, you got everything right there. I was like, oh, okay, so it's turned into this now. He says, get down on your knees right now, and you better suck this dick. So I just dropped down, and I just started sucking it on knees in the bushes. Going crazy. He was like, golly, gun still right here. Gun right here in my head, and I'm eating. And he was like, I wanna fuck, I wanna fuck you. So I was like, oh my God. So what is the pro fucking procedure when you have a gun to your head, okay? <laughs> so he just spit on it and just rammed it. You know spit and ram and all and nervousness is gonna cause a, a milkshake. So he's <laughs> so he's fucking me like ridiculously, honey, you know, and he's trying to do a reach around at the same time. Now at this time, when he did the reach around, I was like really disgusted, like, okay. So now you want me to enjoy this now while your hard dick is in my ass and you only use spit. I'm nervous. There's butterflies and everything else going on my stomach. So when he pulled his dick out, it was covered. It was covered. It looked like a Milky Way or a Mounds or a Mr. Good Bar. So it was covered. I was like, oh, my God, this man's going to kill me because I shit it all over his dick. <laughs> but I was nervous. I was like, bitch. <laughs> So he looked at it like he looked at all the dookie and everything all over the dick. Like that was a turn on for him. Thank God that he it was a rubber. He did put a condom on it or whatever. Cause he, so he peeled the condom off. And I was like, okay, yeah, he's going to kill me because this condom is coated, honey. This is coated with paste. <laughs> so after he busted nut, he pulled the condom off and threw the condom in the bushes. And I'm still standing there. And he tells me, turn around and face the tree. So I was like, okay, is this this is it? Like, it's going to be right here in a, in a bunch of shrubbery in the, in the middle of nowhere, naked. He said, count backwards from 100. So I was like, 99, 98, 97, 96, 95, 94. By 90, he threw me the car keys to the car and said, do you know how to drive a stick? I was like, hell no, I don't know how to drive no fucking stick shift car, no. He told me, don't look. I can't help but look, baby. I, I, I'm looking. He gets in the car. Some, it was a gold Nissan Maxima. The Nissan Maxima pulled up to the exact spot, and a woman was driving the Nissan Maxima, a real woman. And he jumped in the Nissan Maxima and left me right there naked with the car, the keys, or whatever. So as I'm walking out of the bushes, police cars pull up. 
And one of the girls that I was standing on the corner with pulled up in the police car. So I got to thinking, how the fuck does she know that I'm way back here in these bushes? Was this a setup? The girl pulled up. The guy that was robbed, he was in the back of the police car. So this stuff, they pulled right up like maybe like five minutes later. I'm standing here, baby. And I'm like, okay, the client is here in the car. But how did this bitch that I was just standing on the corner with, how the hell did she know that? Because this man drove me way up somewhere. How the hell did she know? I just, it was so strange to me. So the police got out of the car and they said, uh, sir, you know, because this is Miami, they respect nothing. Sir, tell us what happened. So I was like, well, first of all, I'm not a sir. They said, excuse me, sir, you're naked. So I was just like, <laughs> you're a sir. And I was like, okay, whatever. I'm the motherfucking victim here, okay? I'm the victim, so don't come over here with this bullshit. So I started to tell them what happened. Like, you know, the, the usual prostitute on the street story. I was talking to a friend and he was getting ready to give me a ride. And the police said, cut the shenanigans out, bitch, because we were already informed on what was going on. We were informed by the guy. So the owner of the Toyota was like, baby, go ahead and tell them what happened because I've already told them my side of the story. So get ahead and tell them what happened. I said, okay, well, this guy pulled up and he offered me $20 to suck my dick. I told him not to pull over there to this fucking abandoned house and some fucking crazy-ass maniac trans-loving fool crawled through the bushes and pulled a double-barrel sawed-off shotgun in the car and, and kidnapped me and raped me. That's what happened. And so the guy was like, do you want to go to the rape center? And I was like, okay, you know, you just called me sir. So what is it going to look like that you saying well, you have a black male that was raped by another black male? I was not interested in going to the rape center. It was good dick. The dick was good. I'm not going to lie. Even though I shitted on him, honey, I was nervous. I would have did all that stuff. He didn't have to bring the gun, you know? So as I'm sitting up here telling them the story, you know how the, the police uh, talk on those things on their arm, you know, the little, the, the talking, they got a call in and they called out some numbers. So in the midst of them calling out the numbers, the police just jumped in the car and they had wrapped me up in the thing. And it was like, let's go. We've apprehended a suspect. Let me tell you what this stupid fool did. This fool had to have been stalking me walking the streets all night. He parked his car on the other side of the street where the bushes were. He parked his car over there. Do you know that the other girls on the corner had busted out all the windows of his car and flattened his tires? So I guess the Maxima was trying to take him back to get his car, but he couldn't move his car because the girls tore that fucking car down to the ground, baby. And he was standing up there trying to get inside of the car. And the police rolled right up on him, and I was in the back seat. They grabbed him, and they said, you're under arrest for kidnapping and rape of a man. And he was like, man, I didn't rape no motherfucking man. I ain't rape no man. I ain't do shit with the fuck is y'all talking about. Y'all lying to me or whatever, whatever, whatever. The guy called to the other police car, and he said, well, if, you, if we bring him back here to the car, are you going to identify him? And I was like, yeah. So the girl that drove over there that worked on the corner with me, she's in the back seat with me. So as soon as he walked up to the window, she was like, that's him. That's him right there. Yes, that's that nigga. 
That's that nigga right there. Take that bitch to jail. So this fool just broke out and tried to run and then fight the police. And it was crazy. And I'm nervous because I'm like, oh, God. Like, I wanted him to go to jail, but I didn't want him to go to jail because, like, I have to come to work every so often. Like, it might get slow on that. They don't care about queens here in Miami, especially during this time. I could get killed by the same stupid fool and they'll let him back out on the street. After a few weeks went by, right before Christmas, I had to come downtown and I had to talk with the investigator of the case. And the guy was like, tell us your story. I told him exactly what happened. And they rolled over and they looked at the computer. I said, well, how long do you guys have him for? They said, oh, he's released. He got out. His bond was $50,000. He's been out of jail for the last week. I said, okay, so do you honestly think that I'm going to sit up here and press charges on this man? And he's going to freaking kill me on the street? What about my protection? Like, are y'all, do y'all, are y'all going to put me in some kind of protection or something? I'm a queen. A man will kill me for 20 bucks. He'll actually kill me for free. If he was still in custody, yes. But y'all let this, you supposed to not give him no bail. This man kidnapped me. He robbed this dude of his jewelry. Theft by taking of the vehicle. Strong arm robbery. Rape. Are you fucking serious? This man was not supposed to get a bond. Because I was a queen. This shit happened. So I didn't press charges because I was just like, what was the fucking use? Like he's out. They felt like that my life was petty. Like, so my life is worth only $50,000. Like, excuse me, 5,000, 10% of his bond. Are you fucking crazy? So I just was like, no, I'm not pressing charges on it. I said, eventually he's going to get it. He's going to either get Killed by somebody doing that stuff or he's going to get AIDS or something's going to happen to him where he's he's going to get his payback for doing that. I'm just not going to do it. But that was my last night working the street. Right after that, I vowed to myself, I said, Madison, bitch, you have so many things to look forward to in life. This could have been a moment of boom. And all people would have said was she deserved it because she was a whore. And I know this to be true because I walk the streets of Miami and and I know girls that have been murdered. And the police was, they didn't give a fuck about that stuff. They didn't care about that type of stuff. They didn't care. You know what I'm saying? It was just another statistic like, oh, well, girl, they killed another queen. Like, okay, well, she's dead. You know, one less queen to worry about on the sidewalk. During that time, it was very difficult for the girls to transition and work at the same time. I don't think anybody walks that street for nothing less than money. If either one of us had the opportunity to make what we make in a night on a fucking job, do you think we put ourselves at risk? And a lot of us cannot get jobs or or are not allowed to even choose a job because the first thing that the people are worried about is which bathroom we're going to use. Because I've worked on many jobs, but every time they didn't want to say the reason that they were terminated my position was because of my sexuality, but it was. It was. They put it on something petty. Oh, we can exercise our right to terminate anyone within the probationary period. We can exercise that right to do that. And it's things like that that I was faced with that that drove me to the street. Like it wasn't lack of education. Like, and I hate when people misjudge people that that are that are escorts or 
exotic dancers or, or anywhere in the sex entertainment industry. I hate when people misjudge them or, or put them in the category of being uh, uneducated. So I got raped and robbed and I let it go. But my lesson was, Madison, you survived this stuff so that you can tell this story to new girls that are thinking about the business. It's not all what it's cracked up to be. You know, this, these things can happen to you. And you may not be as lucky as me. You might not get away with your life. You, you might be murdered. But you need to know that, that I survived to tell you the story. Like, this happens. And if you're not careful and you rob a boy pussy, you're going to get shitted on. Because that's what happened to that damn boy. <laughs> You know, a friend of mine once nicknamed me the United Colors of Benetton. <laughs> Ever since I was a kid growing up in New York, I've been surrounded by a really diverse and beautiful circle of people. Um, both of my parents were from the West Indies, Jamaica to be exact. Growing up in New York, we first lived in what is called the Projects. But back then, and I'll say it, it was the 60s, the projects were a lot different from how we've come to know them. Our neighbors and my schoolmates were black, white, Puerto Rican. My best friend in elementary school was Hungarian. So it was really like that melting pot for me. And being an adult here in California, things have pretty much stayed the same. Don't get it twisted, though. It's not like I've never been touched by racism, but I really try hard not to let those things bother me. I don't let them color, so to speak, my worldview. And I guess do I have to say it's been pretty challenging feeling that way the last couple of years in our country. But anyway, a couple of summers ago, I decided to take one of my trips to New York City because I just really needed some of that Jamaican family love. And as usual, I worked a full day before my flight. I packed at the last minute. Luckily, my sweetheart, Mia Moore, Alfonso was there to help me, and I had him drag my luggage up from an upper closet. Now, I had already smartly put together a bunch of piles of stuff to be packed. So he was able to just lay the stuff in the suitcase for me. Two hours, two or three hours of sleep later, and 3.30 in the morning, dark, we're on our way to LAX. Now this was a 7 a.m. flight, and I don't usually fly that early. And it was packed. The plane was noisy. It was like <laughs> bumper to bumper traffic just trying to get to my seat. But about an hour into the flight, I'm comfortable now, and I noticed that a lot of the people on the plane around me are speaking Spanish. There was this um, lady in the aisle seat across, and she had this squirmy little toddler on her lap, but she looked friendly enough. So I decided to try out the little bit of Spanish I had been practicing with Alfonso. But um, <laughs> for whatever reason, that morning, all I could get out of my mouth was, como esta señora? And then she starts talking back, rapid-fire Spanish. And at this point, I just laughed. <laughs> but she was able to help me understand that a lot of the people on our flight were connecting in New York City and going on to Madrid. 
So anyway, I settle back in my chair and then I catch the eye of the lady who's right next to me in the window seat. I started to open my mouth, but before I could even say hello, she whipped her head to the side and stared out the window. Now, I had thought I had imagined something before when I was chatting in my little Spanish to the lady across the aisle, this woman, Miss Window Seat, had rolled her eyes and frowned up her skinny lips. I mean, I saw her out of the corner of my eye. I saw her. She was looking at me when she did it. <laughs> so did she have a problem with me? Did she have a problem with our Spanish-speaking cabin mates? Unfortunately, it reminded me of a time that I was walking with my mom near the beach. And these white boys, and they were young boys, they were boys, on their bicycles sped by us and yelled the N-word. Yeah, they, they really did. And many years before that, when I was a child in an all-black choir, this girl in the all-white choir that I was performing with frowned up and told her friend not to talk to me. Anyway, back to the plane. So about five hours later, we land in New York City. And as usual, there's the mad rush to get off the plane as soon as the fastened seatbelt light goes off. Miss Window Seat <laughs> couldn't even wait. She pushed past me to try to get out into the aisle. It's okay. Better time, better time, better time. For some reason, whenever I fly Delta to New York City, I always end up in the gate that's in the furthest regions of the terminal. And I swear that trek to the outside world and to baggage claim is like a three-quarter mile hike. I'm not in great shape. So by the time I get to the carousel, there are only a few people waiting and a few, more, a few bags coming around this carousel. I didn't see my bag. There was a bag that looked like mine, but it was the wrong color. I even laughed to myself because it had a pink ribbon just like mine too. But <laughs> even funnier was when I saw Miss Window Seat on the other side of the carousel. After all of her pushing and attitude, she was still there waiting for her bag just like the rest of us. But anyway, eventually it was just me and this wrong color bag going around the carousel. So I'm like, okay. I flag down this Delta employee and I say, well, was there another carousel for the flight from Los Angeles? Nope, you're in the right place. <laughs> okay, so then where the heck is my bag? Now there's a lost luggage office and it's just a few feet away. So I walk over there and the lady behind the counter, she's really nice, she's friendly, even though I know she's done this a million and one times. So she types my claim number into her thing and um, says, well, miss, according to our records, your bag has arrived. <laughs> okay, then where the fuck was it? <laughs> I mean, at this point, all she could do was give me the instructions, fill out this form, be sure that we have your local contact information, and when your bag shows up, we'll call you. But how likely is that? I mean, I'm thinking, if you say my bag is here, but it ain't here, then obviously somebody took my bag. I couldn't believe this. 
But what could I do? I fill out the stupid form and I go out to the um, ground transportation area. And I'm standing in this long ass line waiting for my turn at a taxi cab. And I'm fuming. I mean, I had a month's worth of daily wear contact lens in that suitcase. I only had a couple in my purse. And in the mad midnight packing, I had forgotten my backup glasses. Most all my clothes were in that suitcase. And all of my curly girl hair products, <laughs> the stuff that people, a couple of years before that, I had gone through the worst depression and the worst anxiety in my entire life. It was a really nasty divorce. And my hair fell out in fistfuls. I mean, even now, underneath this, it's just now starting to come back. In my bag was all the stuff that I needed to manage my half-straight, part-bald, part-nappy, I said it, part-nappy natural hair so that I could take off the damn wig. It was only 9 o'clock in the morning, and it was already so freaking hot out there. You know, my ears were still clogged from flying, and all of a sudden, all the street noises seemed to disappear. And all I could hear is this thump, thump, which was actually my own heartbeat. And it seemed like it was getting louder and stronger, and I thought I was going to be sick. Something had been taken from me, and I knew who to blame. It must have been one of those Spaniards one of those no English speaking foreigners who saw a bag that looked like theirs, took it and didn't check the claim ticket. And not only that, I just knew that I was gonna end up with one of those thick accent cab drivers from Ghana who wouldn't know shit about getting around the Upper West Side of Manhattan. <laughs> I couldn't believe this was happening to me. The line for the taxi was just crawling. And you would think that might give me time to talk myself down, time to start thinking more logically and sensibly, but no. All I did was make up my mind to go back to the lost luggage counter and make that woman help me. So I get back there, and she's still there. And I notice that there are a lot of suitcases lined up against the wall in her office, including that wrong color bag that looked like mine. So it's obvious to me that whoever that bag belonged to had taken my suitcase. And if we could just find that person, we could switch bags. I bet they're still here in the airport waiting for their connecting flight to Spain. So I asked the woman, can we open up that bag and see if maybe there's an ID inside because there was no tag on the handle? She claimed she couldn't do that. I begged her, please. So she kind of looks around as if to see if anybody's watching her. And she pulls the bag away from the wall and starts to unzip it. Now, as I start seeing things in the bag, I'm like, what the hell is this? She opens the bag all the way, and I could see everything that was packed on top. And there was my see-through plastic case with the 36 count boxes of contact lens. My blow dryer 
with the comb attachment. And my curly girl hair products, conditioner, shampoo, mousse, edge control, it was my stuff. But how could that be? It was my suitcase. This off green, wrong color bag with the pink ribbon that looked like mine was my suitcase. But I was so sure that I had a black bag, that I had matching luggage. I was so sure. <laughs> so now the lady in the office is smiling. Well, she's laughing at me. And she's saying something, but I can't hear her above the pounding of my heart. <sighs> On the cab ride going into Manhattan, I start trying to unpack what had just happened to me. I mean, sure, it was funny that I didn't recognize my own suitcase, that dead tired, packing in the dead of night, I didn't notice that I no longer had matching black luggage. That I couldn't remember that when I had gone to New York before, back in December, I had traded one of my black bags for my auntie's larger green bag so that I'd have more room to pack my Christmas presents. Yeah, it was funny that I didn't recognize or remember any of this, but I didn't recognize myself, and that wasn't too funny. I mean, who was that Ashton back there that crazy, out of control with anger woman, so sure that something had been taken from me and I jumped at somebody to blame. But not just one person, I denigrated an entire group of people. Me, Ashton, with the Mexican boyfriend and the Jewish business partner and the Jamaican immigrant family, some of whom have accents so thick just like my cab driver from Ghana. I didn't roll my eyes or frown up my lips at anybody. I never had a chance to do that. And thank God, I never said any of the things I was thinking out loud. All of my hate had gone on in my mind. But I realized that's how it starts, isn't it? in our hearts and in our minds. When we buy into the lie that those others have taken something from us. Was I racist? Was I xenophobic? I don't know. But I know that I never want to see that Ashton ever again. And I am so, so sorry. Thanks for sticking with me. That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.